But at this time, I'd ask disciples of all ages to turn with me to Matthew chapter 27, and I will try to keep this brief this morning. As we've been looking lately at the last days and hours and moments of Jesus' earthly life, today we're looking at Matthew 27. I'll be reading verses 11 through 26. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You've said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And they all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. One of the earliest words that children seem to learn is fair, and they pair it with the word not. That's not fair! And it can be illuminating to see how they understand the concept of fair. In my house, at least, it always seemed that uh, something wasn't fair if it didn't go the way you wanted. You know, if things weren't decided in your favor, if you didn't get what you asked for, that's not fair. And what we would try to point out and teach to varying degrees of success was that you don't seem to mind unfairness when it's in your favor, do you? Do you realize how unfair things are for you most of the time? And as we mature, we, uh, we start to understand that fairness means people getting what it is they deserve, whether good or bad. And what attracts us to legends and stories like Robin Hood is that we, they speak to the sense that we all have that there is something deeply and profoundly unfair about the world we live in, and we desire for it to be fixed. But the gospel sings a different tune in our ears, and we have to be careful not to sing the lyrics of fairness to the melody of the gospel, because they're incompatible. What we see in Scripture, and especially what we see in the condemnation and the death of Christ in this passage, is that salvation is remarkably unfair. And once we understand what that means for us, I believe that we would confess, thank God for unfairness. We see the unfairness of salvation in two aspects of this passage. We see that the innocent one is condemned. And we see that the guilty ones go free. Let's take a few minutes to to explore what that means for us today. 
First, we see the innocent one is condemned. If, if you get no other understanding or impression of this passage, you need to see that it is clear that Jesus is innocent. He is without guilt. He's done nothing wrong. When he first appears before Pilate, the Roman governor, the accusation is he claims to be king of the Jews. But before the chief priests and elders, a few verses before, the accusation was blasphemy. Well, blasphemy wasn't something that the Romans cared about. So they needed to come up with some other charge, some other accusation. And they said, well, he talks about being king. Let's say he claims to be the king of the Jews. And so in verse 11, the governor asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, you've said so. That phrase, you have said so, is ambiguous. It's, it could be interpreted based on context and tone of voice. It could be interpreted to mean, you got it, or your word's not mine. I didn't say that. So when Jesus doesn't really own the title and doesn't clearly, unambiguously claim it for himself, the chief priests and elders we see in verses 12 through 14, they pile on charges and he gives no answer. And then Pilate says, do you not hear how many things they're testifying against you? But Jesus gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now, the reason that was amazing is if, if you were a leader of a rebellion who was claiming to be king, and you're suddenly before the, the phony, folk, uh, woke, fake, imposter government, you're not going to hold your tongue. You're not going to hold back and pretend that you're not the king. And yet Jesus does exactly that. He doesn't give in because he's innocent. According to Luke, after meeting Pilate two times and Herod in between, Pilate has this to say about Jesus in Luke 23. You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. and After examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Moreover, Pilate's wife in verse 19, we see, sends a message calling Jesus that righteous man. They all know that Jesus has done nothing wrong. Pilate concludes in verses 22 and 23, what shall I do with Jesus called Christ? And they say, let him be crucified. And Pilate, he doesn't understand. He says, why? What has he done? If you don't understand anything else from this passage, you have to see that Jesus is innocent. He's done nothing wrong. And despite that, he is condemned to death. But the real question is, so what? Why should that matter to us? that Jesus was innocent. I would suggest there are two reasons that it matters very much for you that Jesus is innocent. The first is that only one who had no need to pay for his own sins could possibly pay for the sins of another. If Jesus is merely a good man, a righteous man, a noble man, a loving man, he may try to give his life in exchange for another. He may try to die for your sins, but he can't because he still, in the end, has to pay for his own. In Ezekiel 18, the prophet gives this word from the Lord. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteous of the righteousness shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. In other words, the one who sins has to pay for their own sins. Someone else can't take your place because they've got to pay their own sins. I thought of this, I thought of the Martin County Fair, which we went to recently. My family and I, we all went, we got the Unlimited Rides armband, where you put this armband on, and you can ride all the rides. You don't have to pay at each one. You've already paid for everything. Now, what was interesting was when we went in there and they gave us the armband, they didn't let us put it on ourselves. Oh, no. 
No, they took us off to the side and, and, and very kind volunteers wrapped that armband so tight around your wrist. Why? So that there's no chance that you would squeeze your hand together and slide it off and let somebody else enjoy the benefits of what you've paid. I mean, imagine if I tried to get on a Ferris wheel and after I'd shown my armband, there it is, and they let me on, if I'd slipped it off and then handed it to my wife, who's across the railing, who doesn't have an armband in this scenario. Are they going to let that happen? No. Because that only pays for me. Only someone who doesn't need to pay for their own sins can possibly pay for another. But there's another reason, one that might feel a little more practical even. Seeing how Jesus suffers teaches us an important lesson that we have to know, we have to hold on to if we're going to endure life on the journey that God has called us to make to His kingdom. And that lesson is this. Life is not fair. Okay, Our brother Josh Malone quoted Webster. I'm going to quote Wesley. Not John Wesley, not Charles Wesley, but Wesley, the boyfriend of Buttercup from Princess Bride. Sorry, way funnier than I thought it was going to be. If you've seen The Princess Bride, there's this moment where the Princess Buttercup, not knowing that she's speaking to Wesley in disguise, says, you mock my pain. And Wesley, speaking to her as one who is naive and doesn't understand the reality of the world, says, life is pain, highness. And anyone who tells you otherwise is selling you something. And that's true. If we think that life is fair, And if we have this delusion that somehow circumstances can work out so that everybody gets the good thing they deserve or think they deserve, then we are delusional. And anyone that tries to tell you that life can be fair doesn't understand reality. Seeing how Jesus suffered should teach us that life is not fair and we must not expect it to be fair. The author of Ecclesiastes puts it this way. There is a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. There are good people that bad things happen to. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. There's wicked people that get what good people deserve. And I've said that this also is a vanity. In other words, it, it doesn't make sense. It's, it's an illusion of sense. It's life under the sun will not be fair. And this is important because we need to manage our expectations. Do we expect fairness in a world of sin? If so, we need to ask why. On what basis do we think the world's going to be fair? Look how the world treated Jesus. Look in this very passage how the government treated him, condemned him on false charges despite the innocence that he saw, that Pilate saw in him. Look how the religious leadership treated him. They were envious of him, and they added on the false charges and stirred up the crowd to condemn him. Look how the crowds treated him. Fickle. They turned on him and rejected him. Jesus warned us to expect as much in John 15. Remember the words that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If Jesus, the innocent one, the sinless one, if he was treated in this way, if he received not fairness, but injustice and unfairness, then how much more should we expect in this world to be treated unfairly? 
Our hope, our hope in this world is never to be that human justice will somehow be perfected, that we can manipulate nations and societies and communities in such a way that everything will be fair. Don't put your hope in that. Our expectation is never that God's people will someday pull the levers of power in our world and all will be well. No. Look upon the innocent Savior, unjustly, unfairly condemned, and remember not to hope in this world. And that would be a really bad way to end things. That's just my first point of two. Because on its own, that is not encouraging. That if even the innocent cannot hope for justice, then what about the less than innocent? If Jesus, the perfect one, was condemned, then what of those of us, which is all of us, who cannot even come close to perfection? Well, the unfairness of God continues in that not only is the innocent one condemned, but the guilty ones are set free. The clearest picture of this is the story of Barabbas in verses 15-17. through 17. The governor Pilate, who had this custom of releasing one prisoner from the crowd that they would choose. And they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. And so when they gathered, Pilate said, Whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who's called Christ? It's such a clear contrast. Jesus, the innocent one who is called righteous by Pilate's wife even, and Barabbas, who, to put it lightly, is a notorious prisoner. We know from other gospel accounts that Barabbas was in jail because in an, in an uprising he committed murder. Barabbas is guilty without doubt. And yet Jesus is the one who is punished. Verse 26, he released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, whipped him, tortured him, delivered him over to be crucified. Christian, that is your situation. You are the Barabbas of the story. It's not that you were doing okay and Jesus helped you be better. It's not that you were a good person who just wanted some assurance of eternal life. No, you, in God's eyes, were the condemned criminal. And then somehow, beyond all expectation, Jesus enters your story and you walk away from jail seeing Him punished instead of you. Just as 2 Corinthians 5 says, for our sake, God made Him, Jesus, to be sin, even though He knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. We get, as Ecclesiastes described it, to us are the deeds of the righteous, and to Him are the deeds of the wicked. But what Barabbas symbolizes actually happens in this story the guilty go free. In verses 24 and 25, Pilate sees that he's getting not, going nowhere, but that a riot was starting. He washes his hands, and then he says to the crowd, I'm innocent of this man's blood. You see to it yourselves. And what do they say? His blood be on us and on our children. I'm just going to set aside for today the fact that Pilate thinks he can just wash his hands and not be guilty. Okay, We're not going to talk about that. The real issue here is that the crowd that called for Jesus' death cannot deflect the blame. Pilate had given them every opportunity to let the innocent man go free. And yes, verse 20 tells us they were incited to this. They were misled. The chief priests and elders persuaded them to ask for Barabbas. But they knew what they were doing, and they chose what was wrong. And they claimed responsibility, guilt for it, and they go free. The innocent one dies, and the guilty go free. But wait, you say. They're not going to get away forever. 
The guilty will be judged in the end. They'll be punished, right? And sadly, this verse, I mean, very sadly, this verse has been used to justify all manner of evil against Jewish people over the centuries, saying that they need to be punished for what they did to Christ. No, it's nonsense. No, we need to read on in Scripture and see what happened to the guilty ones who took the guilt upon themselves. In Acts chapter 2, Peter stands before them after the resurrection and says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You did it. You are guilty. They took the guilt upon themselves and Peter affirmed it. And then in verse 36, he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. You people are guilty, he says. They didn't drive the nails. They didn't twist the crown of thorns, but they are guilty. And what happens to the guilty ones? Acts 2.37 When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And Peter said, And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Look, the guilty ones receive forgiveness. The ones who put him to death receive the grace of Jesus Christ, despite their guilt. How can God be so unfair It's because the punishment they deserved was carried out. The demand of justice, which is death for sin, that demand has been satisfied. Isaiah 53 reminds us of this. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By His wounds, we are healed. The innocent one died so the guilty go free. God can let guilty people go free because Jesus has taken their punishment. You know this. I hope you know this. I hope this isn't the first time you're hearing this, but maybe it is. But whether it's the first time you're hearing this or the 5,000th time you're hearing this, it is the gospel message, the seed of the gospel message that because of the death of Jesus, the guilty go free. But what I want you to consider, whether it's your first time or 5,000th, I want you to consider how we live it out, how we respond. First John Chapter 4 says, Beloved, if God so loved us in this way, by sending His Son to die for us, we also ought to love one another. We need to imitate that. But the gospel, as we say in this church, as often as we are able to, and I will say it again, the gospel doesn't just tell us to do these things, the gospel enables us to do these things. The good news is not just, here's what you have to do. The good news is, you are able to do it. There's a story that reminds me of this because what often happens among kids in my home and I'm sure yours as well is a a Cold War standoff when the feelings have been hurt. I'm not going to forgive him until until he forgives me. And you go to the other side and he's saying, well, I'm not going to forgive her until she forgives me. I'm not going to be nice to her until she starts being nice to me. And we all do that. We're all like our kids in that way. And there was a story that, that comes to mind about this of a pastor I knew in Virginia who took over a church and, uh, and when he started as pastor there, he found out that two of the leaders in that church, two men, for decades had not been able to speak to one another. 
over a matter of $50 from years and years ago. And each was firmly just heels in the ground waiting for the other one to remove the obstacle of their fellowship. And so what the pastor did is he brought them together in the church, sat them down across the table, and he put $50 in front of that man, $50 in front of that man. He said, there, it's done. You both got it. And that's what the gospel does. Hear me out. What the gospel does is it says whatever is keeping you from loving others, whatever insecurity, whatever fulfillment you need, whatever acceptance, whatever is holding you back from the life God calls you to, Jesus has taken care of it already. He's put the money on the table and you're out of excuses. You're able to love others because your need for acceptance, your need that you think has to be filled by them, Jesus has fulfilled it. The gospel makes you able to do these things. And so now your goal, your priority, your mission in this world is not fairness. It's not that everyone gets what they deserve. The golden rule is not treat other people the way they treat you, is it? The goal is treat other people the way you want to be treated, which requires an immense deal of unfairness because that means I'm treating them in a way they don't deserve and I haven't gotten that from them. Because God loves us unfairly. He loves us in a way we don't deserve. We can love others in a way they don't deserve. So what does that mean for the one who hurt you? What does that mean for the one who's messed up his life and is now living on the streets asking for a handout that he doesn't deserve? What does that mean when your own heart speaks condemnation to you? When that self-talk is unworthiness and guilt and ugliness? The emphatic declaration of the Gospel is that we are not measured, we are not valued according to fairness. The salvation of God, the love of God, the gifts of God are so gloriously unfair. Thank God for unfairness. They are unfair in our favor because Jesus tipped the scales by taking all the unfair condemnation. All the punishment, all the wounds, all the chastisement were laid upon Him. The grace of God is unfairly good to you because God was unfairly wrathful to Jesus. Now see yourself, your neighbor, your enemy through that lens. Now as a part of this, I'm to give a charge to Randy. So here it is. And you all may listen in. Randy, do not teach us what is fair. Do not preach to us how we can be good people, worthy people, people worthy of respect and praise. Preach instead the unfair salvation of an innocent Savior who chose condemnation, who drank to the dregs the cup of God's wrath. So that we, who Scripture calls by nature objects of wrath, may instead become vessels of mercy. I charge you to keep that grace before us, before our hearts and our minds. Teach us that we may sing it. Teach us to pray it. Teach us to tell of it. Teach us to live in light of that unfair salvation. Do this, and you will faithfully uphold the calling of this congregation to be its pastor. And to all of us Christians today,
the unfairness of the condemnation of Jesus to death and the unfairness of God's forgiveness of you, the guilty ones, leads us to rejoice. And so that is my charge to you today and every day is that we rejoice in the unfairness of God's salvation. Be amazed at the love of God that would endure such unfairness for us as we're about to sing in a moment. We are forgiven because He was forsaken and that is not fair. We are accepted because He was condemned and that is not fair. He is alive. We are alive and well because He died and that is not fair. How can that be? that our God would do that for us. We don't know. But in that mystery, we worship. And so join me in prayer and join me as we sing of the amazing, unfair love of God. We praise You, our great God and Savior, that You did not give us what we deserved. And You never will. And as we rejoice in heaven singing for eternity, we will each know that we don't deserve to be there. And as we go through each day receiving blessings that we overlook or don't understand, we receive them not out of fairness, but out of Your great love for us. And yet You never cease to be just. Because all of the justice of our condemnation You took upon Yourself. You are fully just and yet so beautifully unfair. And in that we have hope. We rejoice in the name of our Savior. Amen.